You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right, good evening. Welcome, glad that you are here. I'll tell Claire you sang happy birthday to her, okay? Thank you. Thank you for that. We'll be in Psalm 11. Psalm 11. We are continuing our journey through the Psalms. Psalm chapter 11. Excited about tonight. Glad you're here tonight. Welcome. Welcome. Good evening, sir. Mr. Bob, welcome. Psalm 11. Just by way of announcement, don't forget, this Sunday uh, is, first of all, our senior recognition. So we got a couple of seniors we'll recognize. They're graduating from high school and celebrate this phase of their life and celebrate their next steps prayerfully. And that's Sunday morning. And then in the um, evening, 5 o'clock, we'll meet right back here in this room and have a night of worship uh, our worship choir has been working on that, our, our musicians, praise team. It's going to be a wonderful time of powerful Christ-centered music. And interspersed throughout the music, there will be some, some testimonies, people sharing some ways God has worked in their lives. So it will be a powerful time, an encouraging time, and we hope you'll uh, make an effort to be here for that. Bring somebody with you. Invite somebody to come with you, and I know that will be a, a blessing. All right, Psalm chapter 11. We're going to just read the entire psalm. It's seven verses. It's not a very long psalm, but it's full of contents. We're going to work our way through this psalm, and then we will uh, pray over our prayer list. Uh, But look there with me, Psalm chapter 11. The Bible says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to draw near to us in this moment as we study your word. We know that apart from the Spirit, we can't fully understand and appreciate your word. And so we're grateful for the indwelling Spirit who grants us the gift of illumination. Uh, The Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts that we may see the truths of Scripture. And the Spirit gives us those inclinations to respond to obey. And so we're grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we study Psalm 11, uh, the, the finished victorious work of Christ would be uh, foremost in our hearts and our minds. And we'll thank you so much for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Kendall Easley writes this about the, the major theme woven throughout the book of Psalms. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving, confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And John Piper 
uh, highlights the reality that this uh, book of Psalms is in actuality a collection of hymns. He writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. comes from, again, John Piper. And uh, tonight, uh, I've chosen as the title of this psalm a question that is asked in verse 2 or verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The context of Psalm 11 is David feels overwhelmed by the evil that he sees. Uh, years and years ago, this is before we had kids, uh, I was home one evening and Claire was working later that evening. And so I was home by myself and I put on the movie Hotel Rwanda. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. Um, but it's a dramatic uh, retelling of the story of the genocide that took place in Rwanda. It was really a tribal issue between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And it was, uh, it, was a, it was a very captivating movie, powerful movie. But it was just so sad. Just the, the, the level of evil and violence that took place. And I remember Claire walked in the door. I just finished the movie and I was sobbing. I was I was, and she's like, what in the world is going on? I was just sobbing, and I said, I just watched this movie, and, and, uh, and, and uh, I, said, I said, you need to watch it too. She said, I'm not watching that movie. Making you sob, I'm not watching. Uh, but I just remember that moment watching that movie and thinking about the reality of what happened in Rwanda. It, just, it was just overwhelming to me when you, when you think about it. And, and you think about other things going on in our society, and it can feel overwhelming. And that's sort of how David feels here. He feels, as he writes, he's feeling the, 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 the idea that evil is winning. That's kind of how he's feeling here, and he's kind of processing that. And he asks the question, if the foundations are removed, what, what can the righteous do? What can we do about all that's going on in this world? Now, it seems as if that he's getting some advice there in verse 1. David says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? So he's speaking to someone who's saying something to him. So probably someone's speaking to him about what he's going through. And this advice goes something like this. David, you're surrounded by evil. You need to flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, David, the, the wicked are winning. The wicked are winning. You need to flee. You need to get out of here. What can you do when it seems like the, those that are evil are winning the day? And so you might say that verses 1 and 2 and 3 are, are given as... Uh, a counsel to David, and it's really a counsel of despair. Uh, verse 1 and 2, the righteous feel threatened by the wicked, and it seems like evil is prevailing. Now focus on that verse 3 where it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What is, what, what is meant by this phrase, if the foundations are destroyed? The ESV Study Bible says it like this, this could refer to the principles of justice upon which Israel was founded. So it seems like, Everything that is 
that was right is now called wrong. Everything that was wrong is now called right. Things are topsy-turvy. Justice is no longer being followed in our land. Evil is prevailing. Dale Ralph Davis writes this statement, the foundations are destroyed, or if the foundations are destroyed, may indicate a time when the social fabric of life is disintegrating and all the glue that holds society together seems to be going out of whatever normal civil order uh, seems to be. Uh, the the, the uh, TEV, which is today's English version of the Bible, says it like this. They translate that verse like this. There is nothing good or nothing a good man can do when everything falls apart. That's what the counsel is to David. What, what can a good man do when everything's falling apart? When society's coming apart at the seams, when everything that used to be called right is now called wrong, and everything that was wrong is now called right, when evil is prevailing, what can a good man do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so here's the advice in verses 1 and 2. What can the good man do? David, you need to flee. Everything's unraveling. You need to flee. You need to get out of here. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't address this situation. And if we, if we apply this psalm to modern day times, we can certainly identify with society unraveling, things topsy-turvy, everything that used to be called right is now called wrong, and everything that used to be seen as wrong is now celebrated and called right and there is hard to, to establish uh, in our culture that there is absolute truth. Uh, God has spoken, and we need to stand on absolute truth. And so it seems like things are unraveling. But what do righteous people do when evil seems to be prevailing? How should we respond? Should we be like, uh, should we follow the advice that was given to David? Should we flee? Should we just kind of get away? Some people, uh, that's their mindset. When it seems like evil is winning, they want to flee. And in today's time, here's the way people flee. First of all, people flee through cultural withdrawal, which basically says, I'm just going to stay in my little corner of the universe, and I know it's bad out there, but I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to do my thing and let it all unravel, and I'm going to stay in my little uh, niche of Life. I want to withdraw from the culture completely. But if Christians, if they withdraw from the culture completely, how can we be salt and light? Right? How can we let our light shine? How can we, how can we be a preservative in a decaying society? We, at, at some level, we've got to engage culture. Now, certainly the Bible gives us categories of separation. We don't let evil influence us. We want to influence evil. So we have, we have wise boundaries and accountability, and there's, there's things we cannot do and lines we will not cross. But Christians have to be willing to engage culture so that we can make a difference, so we can impact that culture um, with the gospel. Some people flee through nostalgia. They look around and say, I don't like what's happening. I miss the good old days. I wish things like they, uh, are, 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 would, would, would be like they used to be. I, I, I miss my past. And a lot of Christians are stuck in nostalgia. I, I, I miss how things used to be. Well, guess what? It's never going to be like that again. And we can sit here and talk about how good the, the past was and never make a difference in the presence. In the present, right? So some people flee through cultural withdrawal. Some people flee through nostalgia. Um, 
Some people flee towards secular answers. Like, if I want to change the world, then I've got to use the world's methodology to, to do it. And, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves, you know, uh, uh, trying to change things using questionable means or doing things the world's way. And that's never the answer. None of these are biblical. So the question becomes, when society is unraveling, when it seems like the wicked are winning and evil is prevailing, what can the righteous do? What can we do to make a difference? Well, the answer is found right here in this psalm. Two answers to that question. First of all, what can the righteous do? Remember who God is. Remember who God is. There, there are four realities about God that we need to remember. You know, a lot of the Christian life is just knowing some stuff. All right? And there's some things we need to know about God. First of all, remember that God is holy. Look what he says in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So he speaks there of God enthroned in heaven, the heavenly temple, the dwelling place of God, the, the earthly temple was a, a pattern, a type of the heavenly temple, and he speaks of God uh, being holy on his throne. And we need to remember that God is holy. The word holy means uh, absolute moral perfection or total unique moral majesty. Uh, in 1 John chapter 1, the apostle John says it like this, God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. That's what it means that God is holy. There's no, there's no hint of impurity, no hint of evil, no hint of wrongdoing, uh, no hint of character defect. God is perfect. He is holy. And therefore, He is beautiful to look at. In the midst of depravity and evil, we as Christians can gaze on the beauty of the holiness of God. We, we can always fix our gaze on that which is right and pure and true when we look at God. So remember that God is holy. Secondly, or this, or the subpoint on that is, this keeps us from, from conforming. That we look at God, He's holy. He is other than all the mess going on here. And so we don't want to conform because our God is a holy God. Secondly, remember that God is in control. Look in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The throne speaks of His rule, of His reign. He's enthroned. He's ruling the universe. He's in perfect, absolute control. He is sovereign. This keeps us from worrying. Even though it seems like evil is prevailing and the wicked are winning, we can be reminded that God is in control, that nothing is outside of the scope of His oversight, and this keeps us from worrying when things seem topsy-turvy. Third, remember that God sees all. Look in verse 4. It says, His eyes see. We talked about this last week. His eyelids test the children of man. So God sees everything. God knows everything. God keeps a record of everything. You know, when we see evil prevailing, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that people get away with the depth of evil that they get away with. But the point of this passage is they don't. They don't get away with it because God sees everything. This keeps us from disillusionment. Disillusionment. But fourth, remember that God is judge. Look in verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked 
fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Verses 5 and 6 remind us that God will bring the wicked to account. And there are three images here for judgment. The first is fire and brimstone. Notice that in verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur, other translations, fire and brimstone and a scorching wind. And so he uses this this picture of fire and brimstone to speak of the judgment of God. Immediately, a Hebrew reading this would have thought of Sodom and Gomorrah. When, When God decided to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their immorality, their rebellion against him, he sent literal fire and brimstone to destroy those cities. Remember, Lot and his family had to be rescued by the angels. And Lot's wife looked back. She turned to a pillar of salt. But the the angels tried to get them out of there because God was sending fire and brimstone to destroy those cities. So fire and brimstone is a picture of judgment that David uses here. Remember, when it seems like evil is prevailing, God is judge. And, 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 And a picture of his judgment is fire and brimstone. Now, the reason I'm kind of emphasizing that is because I've heard, in a pejorative way, people say, well, you know, old so-and-so, he's a, he's a fire and brimstone preacher. It's in the Bible. Fire and brimstone is in the Bible. And I don't know what people say when they say that, but it's in the Bible. We, we dare not stop talking about judgment. Judgment's coming. That's why people need a Savior, right? If it wasn't for Jesus, I would be rushing headlong towards God's judgment. But I've been saved. I've been forgiven of my sins because of Christ's finished work. And so we don't want to pull back on the reality that judgment is coming. We want to point to the reality of judgment so we can point to the grace that there is a Savior. Remember that God is judged. So it mentions fire and brimstone. But the, the next image it uses is a scorching wind. A scorching wind, verse 6. Uh, oftentimes you see, when you see famine in a land or you see uh, uh, a blight on a land, uh, it's, uh, it's because of a, a, a scorching wind that changes the climate of things. It's a picture of God's judgment. And then a cup of wrath is used as a picture of God's judgment in verse 6. It says, fire and sulfur, a scorching wind, should be the portion of their cup. Often in Scripture, a cup is used as a picture of wrath, that those who are wicked, who are not saved, will drink from the cup of God's wrath. And that is a scary reality. Uh, And it's what makes the Garden of Gethsemane so precious when Jesus said, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. The cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment. But of course, there was silence from heaven, and and Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, chose to drink the cup of wrath that we deserve to drink. Jesus drank it for us, so there's no wrath left for us. Isn't that good news? Cup of wrath. So the, the, the reality that God is judge keeps us from despair. Keeps us from despair. Evil does not win. Evil does not have the final say. God will make everything right because he is judge. So remember that God is holy. This keeps us from conforming. We serve a holy God. Remember that God is in control. This keeps us from worrying. Remember that God sees all. This keeps us from disillusionment. And remember that God is judge. This keeps us from despair. So first of all, 
When it seems like the wicked are winning and evil is prevailing, remember that God is God. That's what David does. He's, it's almost like David is kind of refreshing himself in the reality that he knows who God is. Secondly, what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Represent God in the world. Represent God in the world. Now look what it says in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. The Lord is, now we know what the word righteous means. It means you do the right thing, right? The Lord is righteous. And look at the, the next statement. He loves righteous deeds. Because he is righteous in himself, because he in his character is righteous, he loves seeing people do righteous things. He is blessed by uh, his people doing righteous things. So look there in your notes. The Lord is righteous, so when you live a righteous life, you are representing the character and nature of God. When you live a righteous life, which is living in accordance to God's commandments, God's will and God's way, doing the right thing, not the wrong thing, based upon what God says, when you live a righteous life, you are representing God in the world. You are being salt and light. You are making a difference. You are pointing people to a holy God. It says there, He loves righteous deeds. Hey, look at me real quick. How many of you want to put a smile on God's face? I mean, I would think all Christ followers would want to do that, right? We want to please God. This is how you do it. You pursue righteousness. You pursue a growth in doing the right thing. So the Bible speaks of imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness that Christ gives us as a gift at the moment of salvation. Jesus lived a perfect life. So when we accept him as our personal Lord and Savior, he takes our sin and applies it to, or takes the cross, applies it to our sin. Our sins are washed away. He takes our sin, but he gives us his righteousness as a position before God. That's imputed righteousness. But there's also the idea of practical righteousness. In other words, we begin to, to live in greater and greater conformity to our position. In other words, as Christians, as forgiven, as forgiven sinners, we want to do the right thing. We want to please God with our lives. And here's the unique cultural moment we are living in. You listen to me? As things get darker and darker, righteousness will shine brighter and brighter. Just from doing ordinary Christian things like being kind and being a person of prayer and forgiving folks that offend you. Just ordinary Christian stuff that's in the Bible. Just... just Day in, day out, being a Christ follower in today's time will, will make more of an impact than probably it did 50 years ago. Because people are seeing less and less of that. And so you and I have this unique moment as, as things unravel to really let our light shine just by being normal, everyday Christians. Just by... Righteousness is doing what God tells us to do. He loves righteous deeds. And, he, and here's the, the, the takeaway. When you live a righteous life, you will be rewarded. Look how the psalm closes. 
The upright shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. This is a a metaphor of what it means to have a greater intimacy with God. They'll see his face. They'll, They'll see him more clearly. They'll draw nearer to him. It's like Jesus said in the Beatitudes, which by the way, I think when we get through with Daniel, we're going to go through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Uh, series on that, but that's down the road. But the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There, there, there is a level of intimacy with God that those who are pursuing righteousness experience that is greater than those who are not pursuing righteousness. They see His face. They see God. They draw closer to Him in intimacy and fellowship. And so there is the reward of, of, of closeness to God when you pursue a righteous life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Represent God in the world. If there's injustice, be just. If there's pain, be a healer. If there's despair, give people hope. If there's darkness, be light. Represent God in the world. And that will make a difference. And so, when it seems like wicked, the wicked are winning and evil is prevailing, we are not hopeless, we are not helpless. Our God is God, and we can show people what our God is like by the way we live our lives and impact this fallen world. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.